on, on Nehemiah's life, God's call on his life, to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. That's, that's the story of the book. Uh, and there really is so much in this book for us to learn from in terms of what it means to follow God into the call he has on our lives. What it means to trust him, what it means to kind of walk in the, in the footsteps that he lays before us. Uh, and so, listen, this is here's something I, I deeply believe about every single person in this room, including the little ones today. I deeply believe that God has a good work for you to do. God has a good work for you to do. I'm not getting that from nowhere. This is what uh, Ephesians 2.10 says. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, works, <laughs> for good works, that God prepared before and that we should walk into them. So he's got these good works out ahead of us. We don't know what they are yet. They're out in the future. And he's called us, he's created us to walk into those good works. Friends, your life in the hands of God is a good thing. He's going to use you in this world to be a blessing to others. And so, because of this, it means it's our responsibility, it's your responsibility to walk faithfully into the footsteps, into the works that God has put ahead of you. That's your part. So far in the book of Nehemiah, we have heard, uh, really, his story in his own words. The, the book is written by him, and it's his story of him hearing the news about the state of Jerusalem. He's all the way over in the Persian capital of Susa, a good kind of two and a half, two and a half thousand kilometers away, separated by, by a big desert. And he hears this news about the state of Jerusalem. Again, it's not really news. It's been destroyed for 160 years at the time of Nehemiah. But the issue is it's still in ruins. It's still rubble. There's still, this wall is still destroyed. And so this news just crushes him. It's as if God allows kind of supernaturally all the brokenness in the world to just land on Nehemiah in a moment. And he's brought to his knees in prayer. And he cries out, Lord, would you do something? Would you fix this? Eventually, after months in prayer and fasting and mourning for the state of play, for the, the status quo in the world, uh, because of his role, because of his unique position as the king's cupbearer, his access to the king, and because of this, uh, he gets the opportunity, literally. One day the king asks him, what's wrong? You look sad. What's wrong? Nehemiah tells him what's wrong and asks him for help, and the results are... <laughs> We looked at this last week, if you were here last week. The results are beyond his wildest dreams. The Lord really did soften the heart of the king to heed Nehemiah's request and to bless him with everything he could think of that he might need. And so we pick up the story in chapter 2, in verse 9. If you have a Bible there, you can crack it open. It will be on the screen for most of it. Um, we're going to be basically going from here to the end of the chapter, chapter 3, I should say. This is what we read in verse 9. It says, when I came, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them king's letters. Uh, that, then I came to the governors. That little sentence there summarizes about four months of walking through a desert. <laughs> so very quickly, like, yeah, like he, he left Susa, and he, yeah, two and a half thousand kilometers in the ancient world um, by foot. 
he came to the province beyond the river, which is what they called everything beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. So redundant. Um, and he gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So you're going to get the picture, right? Nehemiah arrives in, in the province after a good kind of four-month journey from Susa, and he arrives with what? Imperial paperwork, imperial soldiers, imperial horsemen. So he, he, he rocks up and he makes quite an entrance. It's not gone unnoticed what he is, the, the kind of the, the pomp he arrives in, not necessarily trumpets, but you know, his authority is immediately obvious to everyone who this guy is and that this guy means business. And listen, it doesn't go unnoticed by some of the power brokers in the region as well. And that's what we see in verse 10. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. It displeased them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the city. These, this is the first time we meet these guys. This will not be the last we hear of these guys. These guys are the thorn in the side of Nehemiah the whole way through the book. Uh, and we really see from the outset that they're not happy that Nehemiah is even just present in the city. They're, they're against him from the very beginning. Why? Because they have something at stake here. They're power players in the region. And they're threatened by Nehemiah's power. We actually know from outside of the Bible, it's pretty cool when this happens, but we've got, we actually have a... We actually know some things about Sanballat, the, the Horonite, from outside the Bible, that this guy actually ended up being governor of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. And so he had some power. Um, but Nehemiah has power too, doesn't he? <laughs> And so these two, they, they kind of get set onto a, um, a collision course with one another. Tobiah the Ammonite, um, we don't really know much about him. He comes off as like a trusty sidekick to, to Sanballat in my kind of a cartoonish imagination of how these things work out. Um, but yeah, look, Sanballat sees Nehemiah rock up in all his pomp and you know, imperial paperwork and his, 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 his soldiers, and he's, he's threatened. And so he goes to war against Nehemiah. And we'll, we'll see more about these guys through the book. Uh, but for now, let's just point out the obvious thing. For us, if you are going to set your mind to follow God, if you are going to commit and decide in your will, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do what he calls me into, we are going to come up against those who will oppose us at every turn. We will have our Sanballats and Tobias just expect it. It's, it's there. It's always going to be there. But we'll get to those guys later. Verse 11. This is my favorite part. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Then, watch this, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I love this. This is Nehemiah, middle of the night. He, um, you know, you can, you can just imagine the, the uh, James Bond theme in the background. Dun, 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 dun. No, that's Mission Impossible, isn't it? What's, what's James Bond? I can't think of the James Bond one. I had it, and it's gone. We'll go Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible music in the background. Dun, 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 dun. And he's sneaking around, and he's going on this top secret, secret reconnaissance mission to try to get the lay of the land. 
Um, it's just him and a couple, just a couple of trusted men. And he points out, no one, no one gets animals because of stealth reasons, right? We have to be quiet. And animals make a noise. No one gets an animal, except Nehemiah gets an animal, doesn't he? I'm not sure how that conversation went down with the rest of the guys, right? Okay, guys, top secret mission, no horses. They're too loud. No, no one bring a horse. 2 a.m., meet you by the gate, and we'll go have a little... And they all rock up. Nehemiah's there sitting on a horse. Ne- Nehemiah, <laughs> didn't you say no horses? Oh, this, this it's nothing. Don't know about it. Shh, everyone be quiet, no talking. Let's go. All right. That's, that's how I picture it. Then I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I think if you're going to visit Jerusalem, I'd rather visit the dragon spring <laughs> than the dung gate. That's just me. You do you. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night by uh, by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And then get this. And the officials did not know where I'd gone. Or what I was doing. So the people he took with him weren't the officials. They weren't anyone that had power. They were just some of his men for protection, I assume. Uh, but the, the, the people in, in power had no idea what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. Before Nehemiah tells anyone what he's even doing there, so he rocks up with, with imperial people, he makes his presence felt a little bit, but no one knows why he's there. Before he does anything else, he needs, to get, he needs to get a sense in himself of the immensity of the task. What actually, how bad is the damage? Is this even possible? And so he goes on a fact-finding mission of his own. Uh, he must swear his men to secrecy or something like that. I'm not sure how that worked. I'm not sure if they would keep the secret after the whole animal incident when they didn't get horses, but he did. Um, but who knows what happened. But after, after fasting, after prayer and fasting after this, this period of just seeking the Lord, after his boldness in stepping out in, in bravery and uh, asking the king for help. And then after this massive journey, the next step for Nehemiah is that of investigation. He needs to actually take stock of what is going on. And listen for us too, you know, be, being obedient to God's call on your life, there will be times where you'll need to take the important step of just evaluating how things are going. Introspection, right? An, an honest, sincere, yet realistic evaluation of how things are actually going with the Lord. It's necessary for all of us who want to follow Jesus with our lives that we would evaluate ourselves. Let me ask you, in your journey with the Lord, in your spiritual life, and you walk with him, what's the state of the wall? What's the state of the wall? What's the real problem in your life right now? What is the main blockage between you and the Lord? What needs your attention? What's the state of the dragon spring and the dung gate? What urgently needs your attention, your prayer, your action, what parts of your lives need to be submitted to him.
Let me ask the obvious questions. How's your devotional life? How's your personal devotional life? How's your time in the Word? Are you spiritually feeding yourself? Or have you gone on some kind of involuntary hunger strike? Where's the wall broken down? How's your personal holiness? Are you growing in your ability to turn from sin and turn to turn to God to get grace? Is there fruit of the Spirit growing in your lives? How's your heart? Is there bitterness? Is there discontent? Is there anger? How's your heart? If you want to follow Jesus, listen, you will need to do some honest assessment about how your heart is, how your life is. What's the state of play? Just how broken down are those walls? As your pastor, you know, Matt's not here today, but I'm sure he'd agree, right? In, in our kind of, in my role of checking the walls of the church, so to speak, and seeing where, the, where they're broken down, what needs attention, I think the most urgent thing we have has been obvious through this, through this series. It's the work of prayer, rebuilding our prayer. And I think that it's no surprise to me that that's what God's been highlighting for us out of the book of Nehemiah. He's been knocking on that door for a while, hasn't he? And so as a church, we just want to recognize, I think that's where our, our wall's still quite low. We said that prayer night on Wednesday night. It was great. It was an important step forwards for our church. It's, but it's one of many. We're going to have to keep pushing that forwards, keep walking forwards, because we're not going to rebuild anything by accident or by inertia. Inertia will be the death of any church. The Holy Spirit is life. And so we need to push, keep pushing forwards into that new work of prayer and kind of build that kind of discontent in ourselves to, to remain in the rubble of the status quo. Let's rebuild that wall of prayer. We're going to keep coming back to that one, I think. I think the Lord's going to keep knocking on that door for us. So, Nehemiah does this, this recon mission. He then gathers in all the peoples from the city and uh, has a town meeting with them. I'm not sure exactly how he did it, whether he had like the he guy with the bell or, or whatnot, but he gathers everyone in and he says to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And I think, knowing human nature, I think one of the problems was in the city of Jerusalem was that no, they didn't. They didn't actually have a sense of the problem. They didn't actually, like, they'd been around for so long, the rubble had been around for so long, that the people, like, they, they could stop, they, they couldn't see it anymore. You know that mess on your floor that's there for a little while, and then it's there for a long while, and then it's invisible, and you just live with it, right? That, that, that's what's happening, right? They, they had come accustomed to the way the weeds were sprouting through the cracks in the rubble, They've grown quite fond of the way, you know, the light comes through the holes in the, in the wall. And like, yeah, this is home. I couldn't see the mess they were in, right? Like my four-year-old looking at her bedroom going, it is clean. <laughs> Darling. It's actually, she thinks that. She's not lying. She just genuinely thinks this is what clean looks like. He says, you see the trouble. Come, come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision or shame. Notice Nehemiah, for him, the broken walls are not just about kind of the civic effect it'll have, you know, the, the, the social effect it'll have. It's actually 
It's actually deeper than that. It's about the shameful state of the people of God. It's, it's a symbol of the, the shame that they're in. And so the wall needed rebuilding so that the people could dwell in the place God had for them. So they could follow him. So he says, let's build. Come on, let's build. And so I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me for good. And also the words the king had spoken. So Nehemiah, he, he, he shares his personal testimony. Guys, this is what's been happening for me. Four months ago, I heard the news. It crushed me. I've been praying. I've been praying. I've been praying. I've been praying. And the Lord seemed to be really using me. And then all of a sudden, the Lord opened up this opportunity for me to have this conversation with the king, and he wouldn't believe what he said. He said, go. Take as much as you need. Take some men. Take some horsemen. Here's the paperwork. Whatever you need. Just how long are you going to be gone? When can I expect you back? And it seems like the Lord's really with me. Um, and they said... Their response to Nehemiah's story and all that had happened was, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. I just love that response. Let's go. Let's rise up and build. Let's strengthen our hands. Let's get after it. Let's get going. God, it seems to be moving here. This whole situation with Nehemiah, it seems that the Lord's on the move. It's like they're, they're aware that what's happening is not just kind of political machinations or anything like that. There's actually, like, the Holy Spirit's afoot here. God's doing something. The hand of God seems to be upon Nehemiah, so let's get after it. And they strengthen their hands for the good work. That's the... I love that line. It just makes me think of... Those are people that know this isn't going to be easy. The task is big. And so there's this, like, resolve within them. Like, let's do this. This is going to take work. Yes, let's accept that. <laughs> So this is going to be a big labor. Yep, let's accept that. This is going to cost us. Okay, let's accept that. Let's get ready. Let's, let's, let's gear up and let's go. Let's strengthen ourselves for the good work that the Lord has for us. Verse 19. But, here's, here's another one of those buts. But when Sanballat, this guy again already, just wait till next chapter, guys. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab, he's a new guy. So there's three of them now. They've added someone else to their tribe. And when these guys heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us, saying, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What is this thing? These are people, uh, just, just as the people step into that good work, right? Opposition comes. Opposition comes like clockwork on schedule, right as you could have predicted it, right? Because every time you step out for a good work, opposition will come. You know, Ben Franklin talked about how nothing's certain but death and taxes. Well, death, taxes, and opposition to gospel work, right? Things that are certain in this world. So these are the guys who have some degree of power in the region, and they are threatened by what's going on, and so they jeer, and they ridicule, and they turn to mockery. You don't have to be a rocket science, a rocket surgeon. Let's go with rocket surgeon. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon, and I hear it, don't you worry. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to realize that if you want to follow Jesus today, and by that I mean like actually are going to not keep it a secret but plant your flag as a follower of Jesus, you are going to attract opposition. You're going to attract your very own Sanballats and Tobias and Geshems. And mockery is often their first go-to weapon because it's often the most effective weapon they have. 
You know, Thomas Carlyle, the British social critic, he, he calls mockery the language of the devil. And so it is. Lies and mockery. And so, friends, you need to prepare yourself for that. It's not going to get easier out there. The world is not getting, it's not getting easier to be a Christian in the world today. It's getting harder. And so we need to actually gear up, put on some armor, expect it a little bit. I know that's like a disappointing way to live your life, but yeah, get ready for it. It's coming your way. uh, Peter in, in 2 Timothy tells us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of us, to some degree, will be persecuted for trying to follow Jesus and trying to live a godly life. That's just going to be part and parcel of what it means to follow him. Jesus never said it'd be easy. (laughs) Jesus never said it would be easy. He said lots of good things about following him. Easy was never one of them. Right? Yes, it is worth it. Yes, it is right. Yes, it is honorable. Yes, it is ultimately better. But it is not easy. There is a real cost to plant your flag as a Christian today. It is going to cost you. Ultimately, there is also a cost to not following Jesus. So choose your cost. To not follow him, much worse. But if you follow him, know that there will be a cost. There will be. So expect it. Then I replied, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I find what happened there really interesting because they accuse the Jews of being treasonous. Are you rebelling against the king? Literally, as Nehemiah is standing there with the king's officials and the king's horsemen and the king's paperwork, and they're like, ha-ha, you're rebelling against the king. And so it's just like this clearly falsifiable claim that they're making of treason. And yet, despite that, Nehemiah does not point to kind of all his credibility. He goes, the God of heaven, the God of heaven has called us to build. He doesn't say, no, it's, it's, it's legitimately legal. I, we've got this, like, you, like, you can go talk to the king if you want to. He's four months walk away. But um, you can go talk to him if you wanted to, right, if you were that keen. But that, that was actually one of the problems, right, is they couldn't just, like, check because of the distances involved. Nehemiah doesn't fight back with his legal right to do so. He, he says, listen, God of heaven is with us. You need that kind of conviction when you come up against opposition. You need that kind of conviction. Not just that this is okay legally, this is what God has called us to. This is what God has called us to. Chapter 3. We're going to do chapter 3 as well. Chapter 3 is big, and it is a big, long list. And we're going to skip through it very quickly. They, chapter 3 is the work actually happening. They begin to build. don't know what the time gap is here, but it just says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. I've got a little graphic there of, um, of Jerusalem. It's going to be a little bit like, oh, you won't be able to read it so much. But you can kind of get a sense of, again, this artist's kind of rendition of it, but the kind of the scale and the vibe. Um, it's a big wall. It's a big wall. That's maybe what you should take from it. Elijah the high priest rose up with his brothers, and they built the sheep gate. 
I'm not going to point out where they are. It's just up there. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of, the, of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Sakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and they set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of that guy, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Imagine getting called out in the Bible like that. Their nobles, they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. And so you've got like, you know, this, this list so far of everyone working on the wall everywhere. You kind of get the picture of everyone taking their little part, right? And then you get to these guys and the Tekoites are building. The nobles, no, they're, it's beneath them. We're not, we're not taking part. We're going to, we'll be supervisors maybe, right? Uh, and Nehemiah calls them out. They wouldn't stoop. You need to know, guys, serving Jesus involves a lot of stooping. A lot of stooping. You know, Jesus, on the last night with his disciples, he stooped. <laughs> he tied a towel around his waist and he washed their feet. And what did he say? You call me master and Lord, because I am. You're right to do so. And yet I serve you. I wash your feet. Do so to one another. The disciples... And us, as disciples of Jesus, are to live. We are to live our lives on our knees as servants, as Christ has. And that's part of our calling. Part of our calling is to be, is to stoop. And so, I, guys, I hope you're not above that. I hope you're not above stooping like these Tekoite nobles were. I'm just going to jump down to verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, son of Harahara. Hmm, don't know how to say that word. Goldsmiths repaired. Next to him... Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to him, down in verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. And it keeps going for about the 30-something, 40 verses of these guys built this part. Next to them, these guys built this part. Next to them, these guys built this part. Next to them, these guys put, built this part. They had a door, they had a gate there, they had bolts. These guys had this part. And that, that's literally the whole chapter. And so um, I've just picked out a couple of bits there. I love this scene that we're seeing, this, this image. You've got to picture it in your mind, right? You've got these priests, you know, holy men of God. They're there with their hammers and they're moving rocks and they're building. And next to them, you've got the merchants, you know, the businessmen. And they're working hard. Next to them, you've got the goldsmiths. Next to them, you've got the perfumers. Those guys are my favorite, perfumers. Next to them, you've got the mayor, right? Half the district of Jerusalem. Him and his daughters. He's got a bunch of girls. <laughs> He's like Pastor Matt, right? A um, whole bunch of girls. And everyone's doing their little part on the wall. And it's this, like this hive of activity. As all these people who would never work on a wall are working on a wall together. And it's this wonderful picture, I think, of what the church should look like today. Right? The, the radical diversity of all these people, they're all so different. 
And they've all got such different kind of callings on their lives. And yet, you've got this radical diversity of individuals unified by this single calling, this single vision, this single purpose. What a glorious picture this is. So to today, Lord, uh, friends, the Lord is calling us to build. He's called us to build. We are called to join Him, not build something for God, but build something with God. We're called to build with Him. Not a building, not a physically building, a physical building, but the church, the people of God, the spiritual people of God. You know, First uh, Peter 2.5 says this. He says, you yourselves, he's talking to Christians, you yourselves are like living stones. So picture the wall of Jerusalem, dead stones. Peter's saying, you're like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house where the, where the Lord dwells. So the church is a spiritual house of living stones built up by the Lord. And so friends, we don't build with bricks or timber, although sometimes we do. We build with living stones. And the New Testament introduces us to the image of the church as the body of Christ. Individual members forming a greater whole, the body of Christ. Different members bound together, connected together by virtue of the fact that they are each individually united with Christ. And yet, each individual part of the body exists in its own way for the glory of God. This bigger thing. Ephesians uh, 4 tells us what, what the building work of God specifically is. You can see uh, in, in verse 11, uh, he, that is God, he gave apostles, that is the 12, um, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that, that word also means pastors, the pastors and the teachers. He gave these different roles and offices within the church to equip the saints, that is the Christians. He gave all these teachers and, and, and different roles to equip the Christians for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So according to Ephesians here, it is Matt, Matt's role and my role in this church at least as pastors to equip the Christians for work, for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. And so just like Nehemiah is laboring kind of shoulder to shoulder alongside everyone, so too pastors labor alongside Christians for the work. We don't do, we don't do the, we're not paid to do the work, we're paid to equip you to do, to, so that we can do the work together, do you see? Um, to quote Tony Marita, he says, pastors minister to you and with you, but not for you. To you, with you, not for you. That's why I don't like being called the minister, like the minister. <laughs> like, no, 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 I'm not the minister. I'm a minister in this church. I'm full of, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by ministers, right? We are all called to the works of ministry together. Yes, I have a specific role, but I'm not the one doing the work. Work of God is a community project. Very much so, a community project. It is a shared responsibility, and it takes a community full, fully committed, and a community galvanized by both the need around them and the calling of God on their life. Just like Nehemiah was galvanized by the need 
He saw the need. He was broken by the need. We need, to, we need to see it, and we need to be moved to it, to action there, and removed by the call of God, of course. Notice in Nehemiah, I just want to point out one or two things here. Uh, notice in Nehemiah, you've got priests next to merchants, next to goldsmiths, next to perfumers, next to a guy with his daughters, all, all moving rocks. They're all just moving rocks, right? Notice that none of those people listed are builders. Like, none of them are, rock, are professional rock movers at all. None of these guys are builders. Almost everyone in this whole scene are people that are acting way out of their sweet spot for the glory of God. Except for the builders, I guess. Those guys are pretty happy. I think in the church, we can become so overly concerned with trying to identify our gifts to make sure we are ministering exactly in our sweet spot that we neglect the essential work that God has called every single person to. Like, we're happy to outsource evangelism to the evangelists. And in so doing, jettison our own responsibility to pick up the hammer and get to work on the wall ourselves. We'll, 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 we'll delegate the work of prayer to the key people that are keen on prayer and jettison our responsibility as Christians to, to go to the work of prayer. And so, listen, yeah, the perfumers didn't go... Guys, we're perfumers. We don't move rocks. We'll be in charge of the deodorant. How's that? This is going to smell. Lots of sweaty men moving stuff. We'll take care of the smells. And um, you guys move the rocks. No, no, no. They literally picked up a hammer and got to work. And so for us, what, what is the essential work that we're all called to? I think Ephesians 12 actually tells us. It's, it's the building up of the body of Christ. Looks like evangelism. Evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus. That's the role of every Christian. That's the work we have to all give ourselves to. It's discipleship. Laboring to grow one another up into maturity. It's the older doing one-to-one Bible reading with the younger. Man, can we just like keep hitting that drum? That's, that's the work of discipleship. That is essential work that we... Uh, it's coming to small group and participating, not just as a, as a passenger, but seeking to, how can I pray? How can I serve? How can I encourage people in this room today? I think this looks like prayer. Lots of it. All the time. For lots of things. As much as we can. Keep, we're going to keep hitting that drum as well, right? I think this is the essential work of the church. Prayer, evangelism, discipleship. I mean, we could, we could list things out, but man, those are things we can't just delegate to the, to, to the few. That is the work of building the wall, the essential work of building up the body of Christ. And listen, can we just acknowledge it's going to take labor? Remember they strengthened their hands for the work? They knew it was going to be hard? Yeah, let's just embrace that. Would we really want it to be easy after what Christ has done for us? Would we really want to just take the easy option and coast our way to glory? It's going to take labor. It's going to cost us time, which means we have to prioritize some things over other things. Some things are going to miss out. Some good, really good things are going to miss out. Yep, we're going to have to structure our calendar. Yep, it's going to cost us money. We have to honor the Lord with our money. And Jesus talks about money a whole lot when he preaches because he knows that the money is a window into what we really care about. And so Jesus is going to say, hey, let's, let's honor the Lord with our money. And yes, it's going to cost us money as we structure our budgets to prioritize gospel work in our world. It's going to take all of these things. And because of this, we're going to miss out on other stuff to prioritize the building of the wall together. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it because what we labor for cannot and will not fail because the good hand of the Lord is upon us. 
the good hand of the Lord is upon us. Uh, Hudson Taylor, the British Baptist missionary to China uh, and the founder of the China Inland Mission, he said that God's work in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work in God's way will never lack God's supply. So as long as we're doing God's work in his way, he's going to supply it. If we're doing God's work in our way, we can't expect that to go well. If we're doing our work in our way, definitely can't expect that to go well. But as long as we're doing God's work in our way, in, in, in God's way, he will supply all we need. And so today, friends, just as I close, I believe God is calling us to rise up and build, to strengthen our hands for the work, to accept that it's going to be hard, and to get after it, and to seek to build up the body of Christ, which is not a wall that's going to crumble. You know, you can literally, like there's archaeological evidence of Nehemiah's wall. It wasn't that big or impressive. It was pretty, it was pretty unimpressive, really, compared to the other walls. You can go look at it. It hasn't lasted. It was a temporary work, is what I'm saying. The work that we do is eternal work. It's a wall that will never crumble. The, the, the living stones, the church, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eternal work. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about how, in the end, all the building will be tested by fire, and that which is made with perishable materials will not survive but those that are made with pure, eternal materials will. And so I pray for our church that our work will survive. If we do it in God's way, if we do his work in his way, it will survive. Let me just finish with this last final word and a message like this. I just want to remind everyone, what is the gospel? What does the gospel say? The gospel is free grace, free grace for undeserving sinners. Through the atoning death of Jesus and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Free grace for undeserving sinners through the atoning work of Jesus and the supernatural, endless power of the Holy Spirit. Free grace for undeserving sinners. Free grace apart from works. Apart from works. Friends, we do not labor to receive the favor of God. We receive the favor of God, and so we labor. We receive the favor of God, and so we labor. If your building is fueled by a desire to please God, and not to desire to please God, if your, if your building is, is fueled from a desire to prove yourself before God, you'll destroy yourself. That, that brand of Christianity is is not of God. We labor out of thankfulness, out of thanksgiving, out of gratitude for what it is we receive. So, friends, following the call of God on our lives is not what earns us anything before God. However, it is how we walk into the blessings that God wants to give us. He cannot and will not bless us while we spend our lives chasing our fruitless, selfish pursuits. But as soon as we step into his purposes, that's work he can bless. That's work he can bless. We can never, we can never leverage our way into God's blessing through our works. He lifts us up there despite ourselves. And so today, look, this is what I'm getting at. 
whether you're here and you're full of energy, you're ready to go, you're just jumping at the bit, you're invigorated by the Holy Spirit, you're, you know, you're just excited for what God has for you. Whether that's your story today or whether you barely made it here today, <laughs> not because of the kids and the, and the cold and whatever, but you barely made it here because that's where you're at spiritually. And you feel like you're scraping by and that you're spiritually stuck, trapped, exhausted, and not just not thriving in your faith. Listen, there's both types of people in this room. It's worth acknowledging that that's kind of like we're both, we're all both of those people at times in our lives, right? That's, that's normal. We're all, we're all, deep down, we're all kind of both those people. I believe the Lord wants to take both of you, both the exhausted and the invigorated, <laughs> take both of you by the hand and lead you into his rest, into the knowledge that you've received his love by free grace despite your sin, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are safe in his hands. But he also wants to remind you that he has good works for you. That's actually part of your rest, is knowing that your life matters to him. He has good works for you to walk into. So let me finish with the, with the verse that we had at the start. Friends, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we feel the immensity of the task, like those Israelites must have as they looked at the wall. Lord, the, the wall is massive. It is bigger than we could ever hope to accomplish. And that can be really daunting and can stop us from even trying. You know, the call to evangelism can feel so intimidating and exhausting that we just, in our hearts, we just go, that's just too hard. And yet, Lord, we know that it is your power that is at work in us. Lord, you have loved us. You've adopted us into your family. Lord, you've sat us down at your table. You've assured us that our hearts are safe in your hands. But the blessings we receive from you, Lord, they're not just for us. Lord, you've called us to be conduits of grace in this world. Lord, help us to be so. Would your grace flow not just to us, but through us? Help us to strengthen our hands for the work ahead. Help us to count the cost of following you. Help us in the work of investigation, Lord, that we would see what is most urgent in our lives, Lord, what needs most attention, and would we prioritize, Lord, addressing those things. Give us honesty. Give us insight into ourselves there. Lord, we pray as well for protection. Lord, help us stand against opposition, Lord, that would crush us. 
Lord, help us as we gather together as a community, as your community, Lord, as your body, each dedicated to our little part of the wall. Lord, that our city might be blessed and you might be glorified in our world. So Lord, strengthen us for that good work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.